Now there are a couple, like individual cases of men who were consuming very, very high amounts of soy. If I remember correctly, it's like 12 up to even close to 20 servings a day. And they might have experienced certain issues that, that could be related to something you know, hormonal that supposedly improved upon the elimination of the soy. Now that doesn't prove cause and effect, but let's assume for a second that it was the soy doing it. They were consuming far more than anybody that is recommending soy consumption is gonna suggest anyway. And even then, once you're at that level of soy, you're clearly gonna be crowding out other healthy foods too, right? It's gonna be essentially a soy diet. So I just wanna put that out there so people understand where a lot of these concerns come from. That's Dr. Matthew Negra, and this is The Proof Podcast. Hey friends, welcome back. It's great to be here with you. I hope you're having a lovely week. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm glad that we are finally connected. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. This show is dedicated to making science-based lifestyle decisions. In a world of misinformation and disinformation, my goal is simply to bring you agenda-free, nuanced information to help you optimize your health so you can feel better today and better for longer. I'm also a huge believer in considering the effect that our lifestyle choices have on the world around us, another theme that we'll explore together. Today we hear from Dr. Matthew Nagra, who joins us to take a deep dive into all things soy or soya, depending on where you live. You know, the food group that some love and others loathe. Where does the evidence lie? That we shall find out in part one of this conversation, today's episode, where we focus on how soy foods interact with the endocrine system, as well as their effect on hormones and hormone-dependent conditions, such as certain types of breast cancer and prostate cancer. Lots of information, all supported by the highest level of science we have available to us today. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app. 
making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Matt, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I think this is now the third time that you've been on the show. We previously sat down in episodes 113 and 133, I think it was. So uh, now coming up to episode 200. So that was a little while ago, uh, but it's great to have you back. Well, I, I didn't think it'd been all that long, but I guess so. Now, before we get into today's topic of soy, I know that you've been currently preparing for the first debate that I will be moderating on my new show. Uh, perhaps you could share some details on how this debate came about and and what listeners could expect. Yeah, I mean, so it's a debate between myself and Tucker Goodrich. Now, he tends to hold a position that seed oils, that's kind of the, I guess, colloquial term, but you know, your typical vegetable oils, uh, canola oil, soybean oil, and so on, are not just really detrimental to health, but are essentially the driving factor for a lot of the chronic disease we have today. Um, I actually oppose that view. I, I hold the position that, if anything, they're actually beneficial, particularly when replacing a lot of other sources of fats, especially animal fats, the saturated fat. Um, and so I, I just reached out to him on Twitter, and uh, I'm sure it's still there. I'm sure people can see it. It was just like, hey, you know, I take issue with some of the claims that you made. Would you? mind uh you know having discussion about this uh something along those lines and actually a few days went by i, I don't think i had any response and then he reached out and said yeah I, i'm happy to do it i've got you know this person who's willing to host it this person who's willing to moderate i said okay and we went from there but then scheduling issues took place and we couldn't figure that out for quite some time and that's when you came in right i said hey we're, we're stuck we don't have a moderator these dates work and you said you're able to make it work. So, so here we are. Yeah. So I was the backup. I was the fallback guy. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't actually the preferred option. Um, <laughs> you're my preferred option. Let's yeah. say that way. I think that these discussions are needed, 
respectful discussions where people have very different ideas. You know, often we see on social media, I know personally, if you try and engage with someone who has a different view on something, often that ends in, in you being blocked and there are these echo chambers that exist where a, a certain narrative uh, or idea goes or remains unchallenged. And so I think, you know, this this episode, this quote unquote debate or conversation, however we want to frame it, is is really, it's missing. And it'll be very interesting for listeners to come into a conversation and hear what evidence people are using to to inform their, their views and then, of course, listeners to kind of make their own decision as to where they personally land and what, and what their opinion uh, is. So I, I'm, I'm super excited and, and I hope if this one goes well, then it kind of serves as a format for, for future debates on different topics within the, the kind of field of nutrition. There are a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so the purpose of today's episode uh, conversation was to tackle a, a topic that you and I, we did briefly cover in episode 133. That episode was dedicated to protein and we spoke about soy foods or soya foods as they're uh, called in certain parts of, of Europe and I'm sure other places and, and really how these foods affect human health with a, a sort of particular focus at least in today's episode, part one, on how these foods may or may not affect hormones in both males and in females. And then as an extension of that, zooming out a little bit more and thinking about hormone-specific conditions or dependent conditions such as breast and prostate cancer and what all of this means in terms of recommendations or in terms of how people may shop at the supermarket. And, and then in part two of this conversation, what we know about soy foods and their effect on other health outcomes. For example, cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, uh, bone fractures, lean muscle growth and strength, a lot of other interesting areas that, that we can tackle in that sort of second part of this conversation. Perhaps we kick things off with a, a very obvious question. What, what is soy? What are the, the type of foods that we will be referring to? And perhaps a, a sort of high-level description would be helpful as to why soy, of all foods, why is soy, from a nutrition point of view, interesting to, to talk about within this context of hormones and human health? Yeah, soy is, uh, well, it's just a legume, really. I mean, it, it falls into that category of legumes with beans, chickpeas, lentils, and, and so on. Um, but it's of particular interest because we do have a lot of research around soy and various health outcomes, like you mentioned, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and, and certain cancers. Um, but it's also different enough from other legumes to warrant its own discussion, just nutritionally even. You know, it typically contains more protein, uh, more polyunsaturated fats, uh, which are typically associated with good uh, cardiovascular health. Um, it can be a good source of choline, certain minerals like calcium and iron. And it's incredibly versatile, 
right? You've got tofu, you have soy milk, you have edamame, you can get black soybeans. Um, I've actually had black soybean-based pasta. So the noodles are made out of black soybeans even. Uh, and then of course there's soy sauce and then there's soybean oil used in everything, right? And as far as at least processed foods, which uh, not necessarily consuming that for uh, the health outcomes, but um, but it is again, just used in so many different ways. Now, another thing that makes soy really interesting is that it's a concentrated source of isoflavones. So these are flavonoids or, or polyphenols, and those are what are typically referred to as phytoestrogens. That's where that whole concern around the hormonal impacts of soy consumption come from are these isoflavones, which have a, a similar structure to our own endogenous estrogens, but that doesn't mean that they affect our body in the same way that the estrogens that we produce do. And obviously that's going to be a lot of what we're discussing today. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I, I'm not sure everyone appreciates that phytoestrogens are polyphenols. You know, fall under the, the kind of same class or group of phytonutrients as resveratrol and curcumin and uh, anthocyanins in berries. These are all different types of polyphenols and uh, isoflavones, as you say, are, are often referred to as phytoestrogens and we'll go into detail uh, as to, to why that is. I think that's a, a very interesting thing to explore and, and there's quite a bit of confusion as to how they do interact with the endocrine system, which uh, hopefully we can clear up. How long have humans been consuming soy? Is, is soy a, a new food or is it quote unquote ancestrally consistent? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, I guess that depends on what your definition of ancestrally consistent is. But I mean, as far as what I could find, soy was first domesticated uh, in Eastern China around 3000 years ago. Now, of course, it wasn't widely consumed right at first, but over time uh, became more widely consumed and slowly spread across uh, Asia and to the West. Um, and as far as North America, I found that it you know, first came over here around um, the mid-1700s. Now, since then, yeah, it's grown. I mean, uh, soy cultivation um, in Canada, anyways, significantly risen since about the 1970s, uh, which is, of course, more recent. But if we look at just human consumption as a whole, especially in Asian populations, it has been around for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense as to uh, the quantity of soy foods that a typical person living in Canada or the United States or Australia would be consuming? I guess soybean oil aside, if we kind of put that to the side, the common soy foods like soy milk, tofu, uh, tempeh or tempeh, depending on, on how you pronounce it, uh, those sorts of foods, what's a, the average person kind of consuming per day? If we look at research on Asian populations, comparing low intakes to high intakes, and then we look at similar comparisons in North American populations, uh, low and high intake, the high consumers in North American populations are typically below the low consumers in Asian populations. You know, some comparisons will really be looking at, you know, a serving a week or two servings a week as considered higher consumption in a, a North American population um, or a Western population. So that, and oftentimes we'll see, especially skeptics, you know, soy skeptics will say that, well, yeah, there's no benefit in these studies on American populations for 
you know, X, Y, or Z health outcome. But I don't expect to see a benefit when you're barely consuming any, right? If you're going from consuming once a month to once a week, you're not really going to see much of a benefit. That'd be a pretty special food if you did see a benefit, right? And so that's uh, that's something to consider. The exact numbers as far as uh, soy consumption over here, I didn't uh, uh, look any of those up, but I, I do have some of the contrasts that we see in at least the studies on the topic. I think that's a really good point when considering epidemiology, often high and low in a study, it's, it's they're relative. And so in one population, high and low might be vastly different and there might be a huge difference in exposure. And therefore you may see a significant negative effect of a certain food or a positive effect. And then you look at another population where the range of intake of that food or nutrient is much smaller. All of a sudden low and high is very close and it becomes you know, far less likely that you're going to see a significant difference either way. Yeah, and you actually see the opposite with red meat a lot of the time. Whereas if you look at American populations, you'll actually see a, a sometimes striking increase in risk of, say, cardiovascular disease between those who consume the least and the most. But you won't see an association if you look at an Asian population where they're, the people consuming the most are having it you know, once or twice a week. And so it, it can work both ways for sure. So let's go into isoflavones a bit more to kind of contextualize all of this. As I said, there's a lot of confusion here. If you jump online, you may well see people saying that uh, isoflavones, as we said, often called phytoestrogens. You may see people saying that these increase estrogen levels, they uh, lower your testosterone levels, uh, essentially wreak havoc on your hormones is the, the kind of rhetoric there. Before we, we go into clinical trials, because I know they exist on how soy and isoflavones affect hormone levels, we do have human clinical trials uh, looking at that. Talk to me about what phytoestrogens are in a little bit more detail and, and how they interact with the endocrine system, as much or a little information as you feel is necessary to, to help people better understand what's going on here? Yeah. So as I mentioned, they can, uh, to a degree anyways, they mimic the structure of our own estrogens, meaning that you know they can bind to some of the same receptors because they can be recognized. Uh, the difference is that these phytoestrogens we find in soy, the, the main uh, two called genistein and datezine, not that that's super important for, for the, the people listening, but uh, in case I mentioned those, those names, um, they have roughly a 1-100 or 1-1000, the binding affinity that our own estrogens do. So they are much, much, much weaker. They don't bind very strongly to those receptors. So right there, they aren't going to act on the receptors in the same way that our own estrogens do. Now, at the same time, they preferentially bind a certain type of receptor. So there are estrogen receptor alpha, I'll call it ER alpha, and there's estrogen receptor beta, which I'll call ER beta. Now, these phytoestrogens prefer to bind to the ER beta. And that's important because this receptor can modulate the estrogen response, meaning that it can go both ways. It can be proestrogenic, it can be antiestrogenic. And in fact, it can actually mitigate the proestrogenic effects of the ER alpha receptor. So when you're consuming these, you know, soy phytoestrogens, in certain tissues, they might have an anti-estrogenic effect and actually uh, reduce estrogen activity. In other tissues, they may have a pro-estrogenic effect. 
Um, now, just to, to kind of give an idea of, of how that might play out, let's say it had an anti-estrogenic effect in breast tissue. You could be consuming these phytoestrogens and they can actually decrease the estrogen response in breast tissue. And that estrogen response can actually drive breast cancer. So you'd be going the opposite direction, potentially reducing breast cancer risk. For bone tissue, a pro-estrogenic response can lead to uh, improved bone mineral density, or at least maintaining bone mineral density as we age, especially in women. And again, this is just speaking about some of the mechanisms that could be at play. And of course, to confirm this, we'd have to look at human data to see, okay, if you do consume more, uh, or people who do consume more, do they have a lower risk of breast cancer? Do they have a lower risk of osteoporosis or bone fractures? Uh, And we do have data like that that we can look at. But that is why we shouldn't just hear the word phytoestrogen and think that automatically it's going to lead to an estrogenic response because it can very clearly have uh, different responses depending on on uh, what the the beta receptor is doing in that tissue. I've read and heard a few people talk about the gut microbiome and perhaps there being some differences in in how uh, one person may metabolize isoflavones to the next person. Is that is that an important consideration at all? Yeah, so that's one of the theories uh, behind why we see differences in health outcomes between, say, Asian populations and Western populations, uh, because it's thought that in Asian populations, there are more of what are called equal producers. So they can you know, break down and convert some of the phytoestrogens into uh, this product called equal, which has a, um, a pretty strong affinity for, again, those beta receptors I mentioned, the ER beta. I'd say, yeah, it's possible, perhaps even plausible. But I do think the largest reason, or at least the most plausible reason for why we see a difference in health outcomes between those consuming soy in Asian populations versus those consuming soy in Western populations is that difference in dose that I mentioned. Now, if we were to take um, or look at those living in North America who are consuming you know, a couple servings of soy every day or so, uh, and we were still seeing that it wasn't as beneficial as soy consumption in, say, Asian populations, or ideally, you'd look at the same population and separate by uh, who produces more equal, of course, um, then maybe we can have more reason to really dive into that. I think it's an interesting area and an area I'd love to, to see more research on. But for right now, I wouldn't say that that's going to make or break whether or not you benefit from soy consumption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my understanding is that we're, we're not even quite certain whether one can change their microbiome and then become an equal producer or, or not. But that, that'll be an interesting area of, of research to kind of watch play out. Do you think one of the other differences between Asian and non-Asian cohorts, in addition to the dose, the amount of exposure, is the, the lifetime exposure, how early they, they introduce soy foods into their diet? I think that's always a consideration uh, because you know when we look at anything, let's look, I, I know we spoke about this in our first episode, but LDL cholesterol and its association with cardiovascular disease, you can lower it later in life and reduce your risk compared to where you were, but having a lifelong reduction in LDL, let's say genetically low levels is even better. Typically, when we're looking at these exposures and their association with certain outcomes, the length of exposure is super important. Typically, the longer that exposure, the the more significant reduction that you'd get. And again, going back to the LDL and cardiovascular disease association, if you take a cohort of young people and you look at their LDL levels and follow them for you know decades, you can again see a, a much greater 
uh, reduction of risk there. So absolutely, I think that's possible, but that also doesn't mean it's it's ever too late. You know, I wouldn't say that that it means that you're not going to reap benefits if you start adopting or start consuming, say, more soy foods later on in life. To your point on, on cardiovascular disease, I think it's incredible that there are interventions that can have a positive effect after someone has had decades and decades of exposure to, to an elevated uh, LDL. It, it speaks to how effective some of those interventions can be. Uh, if you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. What I, what I think we do from here is go through the data that's looking at soy consumption and, and more specifically uh, isoflavone consumption and how this affects hormone levels, so testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, et cetera, and, and health outcomes, particularly what are considered to be hormone-dependent cancers such as prostate and, and certain breast cancers. Let's start with men. 
Tell me uh, about what we know about soy consumption, uh, isoflavone consumption, and how this affects testosterone and estrogen levels in males. Are, are males who consume soy going to experience feminizing effects as some on social media would, would have you believe? Um, well, actually, before we jump into the trials on that, I think it's important to note where a lot of that concern comes from. Uh, and now there are a couple case studies, and, and these are like individual cases of men who were consuming very, very high amounts of soy. You know, uh, if I remember correctly, it's like 12 up to even close to 20 servings a day. So very, very high soy intake. And they might have experienced certain issues that, that could be related to uh, something you know, hormonal, uh, things like erectile dysfunction. Uh, there was some breast tissue growth in, in one of the males that supposedly improved upon the elimination of the soy. Now, that doesn't prove cause and effect even then, but, but let's assume for a second that it was the soy doing it. They were consuming far more than anybody that is recommending soy consumption is going to suggest anyway. Um, that's far beyond. I eat a lot of soy and I'm nowhere near that. But that's a classic assumption that something that's good for you is good for you at any level. Yeah, of course. And, and even then, once you're at that level of soy, you're clearly going to be crowding out other healthy foods too, right? Um, it's going to be essentially a soy diet. So I just want to put that out there so people understand where a lot of these concerns come from. Now, what we want to ultimately do is look at randomized controlled trials where men are taken and you know they're randomized into two groups. Half of them get either uh, soy foods or soy protein uh, or sometimes isoflavone supplements, so phytoestrogen supplements. And then the other, um, the control group, uh, you know, gets some other protein, maybe a whey protein supplement or, or uh, a placebo supplement of some sort. Uh, and then you follow them for a period of times. And so we have a meta-analysis of 41 randomized controlled trials uh, from 2020. So pretty recent. Uh, it was actually December 2020, if I recall correctly. Uh, and, you know, the doses varied by study. So if we're looking at protein intake, sometimes it was, you know, 40 grams, uh, even more of protein uh, being consumed, soy protein. In particular, over 100 milligrams of isoflavones, which is quite a lot to put that in perspective. A cup of soy milk can be anywhere from you know, 20, 25 milligrams, uh, 100 grams of tofu can be around the same, 100 grams of tempeh, maybe a little more around 35 you know, milligrams or so. But, uh, but you're looking at several servings there. At least, at least three or three or four servings. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is in human subjects, right? This is, yeah, humans, absolutely. Um, and they ultimately found that there weren't any statistically significant associations between soy or soy isoflavone consumption and testosterone or estrogen levels. And that was regardless of intake, including intakes that are higher than typical Asian intakes. Um, now, they also did what's called a subgroup analysis, where they only looked at the studies where people were consuming the most, and that was at least 75 milligrams of isoflavones uh, per day. And again, there wasn't any statistically significant association uh, there uh, with either estrogen or testosterone. So that's pretty good evidence uh, that we probably don't have to worry about soy intake, at least up to these levels, which are pretty substantial, uh, having an impact on hormones. Okay. So that's hormone levels in, in adult males. What about prostate cancer? You know, much has been made of the, the World Cancer uh, Research Fund stating that there is some, uh, albeit a, a limited amount of evidence linking dairy consumption to an increase in risk of prostate cancer. 
how does soy fare when it when it comes to risk of prostate cancer? Would, for example, swapping a glass of dairy milk for soy milk be a, a good or bad option here? Um, well, we actually have a uh, meta-analysis from 2018, and this was on uh, 30 observational studies uh, anyway. And uh, they found that higher consumption of total soy, so you know, all soy products together, led to a 29% lower risk of prostate cancer compared to those who consumed the least. Uh, and if you limit it to unfermented soy in particular, there was a 35% lower risk. Fermented soy, interestingly, wasn't actually associated uh, with risk one way or the other. Um, and then uh, each of genistein and datezine, those isoflavones I mentioned before, were both individually associated with a lower risk too. Now, one thing that I find really interesting is um, when these studies do a, a subgroup analysis for specifically tofu, because I often get these concerns around tofu being processed or, you know, you get those sorts of concerns and people think that they don't carry the same sort of benefits that we'll get from other soy products. But tofu assumption or sorry, consumption itself was associated with a 27% lower risk. So that uh, that's pretty promising there too. Uh, now, for miso and uh, soy milk, neither were associated with uh, a statistically significant reduction in risk, but the soy numbers were at least suggestive of a possible reduction in risk, uh, or sorry, the soy milk consumption, uh, but there was a lot of variability amongst the studies. It, it wasn't very consistent one way or the other, so it, it's one of those things where it's a little tougher to draw firm conclusions. But yeah, we see you know pretty consistently here that at worst, there's a neutral association with certain soy products, or at best, there's actually benefit for prostate cancer risk. Um, so, you know, at the very least, not reason to be concerned. And, and yeah, substituting out the dairy milk for, for soy milk might even be beneficial based on this. You mentioned processed foods, and this is a bit of a sidebar to our conversation here. But do you think there's a, a bit of an oversimplification out there that processing equals bad, processing is, is not natural? How would you kind of encourage people to think about processed foods and which ones maybe they want to eat less of versus other ones that could feature within a healthy diet? Yeah, I mean, there, there are different classifications. There is uh, you know, mildly processed, moderately processed, ultra-processed. And as a general rule, ultra-processed foods are typically associated with a higher risk of various chronic illnesses. That doesn't mean that the fact that something is processed or even ultra-processed means that it's going to be um, associated with a higher risk. And there's always a dose to consider too. So if we're talking about more moderately processed foods, like I, I would put tofu in that category. Yeah, sure. Some of the fibers removed, um, maybe you lose a little bit of the mineral content. You've actually got increased bioavailability for the protein. You've got great, uh, you know, protein density there too, as far as per calorie, uh, protein content. And then you still, you can have a really good source of calcium if it has uh, added calcium, which some of them do. If you get calcium set tofu, it can be a decent little source of iron, decent source of polyunsaturated fats. But at the same time, what's most important is associated with a you know good health outcomes, like a lower risk of prostate cancer I just mentioned. We have to look at foods and how they affect our risk. We can't just put them into this box of processed versus unprocessed because look, vinegar, for example, great for you. There's research on vinegar consumption and blood sugar. There's a little bit on, uh, I believe, lipids as well, um, suggesting benefit there. Uh, and so... If we were to avoid all processed foods, we'd have to avoid that as well. 
Uh, same with uh, plant-based milk, soy milk. Uh, it would be another one. Incredible source of calcium, especially if it's calcium fortified, but it's also processed. And so do you forego that uh, because it's processed and then you know potentially struggle to meet your calcium needs on, on a plant-based diet? Or do you have the, the quote-unquote processed plant-based milk? Yeah, I think that's important that some processing can actually improve the, the, the quality of a food and nutrient availability. And even I know that it's an open conversation, the ultra processed foods, I know Kevin Hall and, and some of his colleagues are wanting to delve deeper into what properties within ultra processed foods are deleterious and should ultra processed foods be further defined and are, are some foods that fall in that category uh, less healthy than, than others. So that's a kind of another interesting space to watch and one more thing to just note about that i I think we spoke about this before too but beyond burgers for example or plant-based meats would be considered ultra processed but you also have to consider what you're comparing it to um like the swap meat trial i know we discussed previously uh they had people eat either a couple servings of a beyond burger or beyond meat per day or a couple servings of organic meat so unprocessed whole food essentially and when it came to cardiovascular risk factors, Beyond Meat actually did better. So this wasn't looking at hard health outcomes, but you know we can suspect based on that that it probably is beneficial in the long term compared to that you know red meat. And so again, it just goes to show there's way more to this conversation than just a classification of processed, unprocessed, even ultra processed. Yeah, I also had uh, Christopher Gardner on the show and he, he spoke about that trial and, and how he was a, he was a huge skeptic actually oh, wow. <laughs> uh, of beyond, uh, meat at the, the beginning. So he eventually felt kind of obliged to run the study given the, the increase in, uh, popularity uh, and demand for, for plant-based alternatives. And uh, of course, uh, understanding some of the benefits off of grabs in terms of planetary health. And uh, so he was a little bit surprised by some of the results. And uh, you know, I think that's an interesting episode for people to go back to if they want to learn more on, on that. Coming back to, to tofu, soy foods and prostate cancer, what are the mechanisms by which soy may be protective when it comes to, to prostate cancer? Do these isoflavones reduce the ability of estrogen to promote cancer growth in, in prostatic tissue? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there are several proposed mechanisms actually in that very meta-analysis I was just speaking about. They do touch on some of these mechanisms. Uh, they don't go into super great depth on them, but you know, a few of the things that are mentioned, and I think one of the ones that would be more related to uh, the isoflavones, is that prostate tissue has um, higher concentrations of that ER beta receptor, as I mentioned. And activation of those receptors is actually associated with reduced cell proliferation. So the the growth and and multiplication of those uh, cells and lower prostate cancer histological grades. That's kind of how you grade cancers as they become more advanced. And the ER beta expression, so the presence of these receptors is often lost during prostate carcinogenesis, so as uh, prostate cancer develops. So it's possible that the isoflavones are binding to these receptors and actually helping control and reduce that cell proliferation and differentiation into cancer tissue. Can we say for certain that's the mechanism at play? I mean, no. Can we say that there aren't other ones? Absolutely not. I mean, there are other ones to speculate about too, but it's an interesting one for sure and might be um, driving at least a part of this reduction in risk. What about someone who has 
existing prostate cancer? Would, would soy be, be safe for them to consume? As far as I'm aware, there are no guidelines suggesting that one needs to um, avoid soy in that case. If anything, I would speculate it probably still is beneficial. But I haven't actually seen research on uh, those with prostate cancer or prostate cancer survivors. Um, uh, that's actually a good thing for me to, to look into a little more. But uh, we do have data on breast cancer survivors too, which we'll get to in a little bit. But as of right now, I see no good reason to avoid it. And if anything, I mean, a reason to believe there might even be benefit. Uh, it's just not something I would I would uh, be too strong in, in my recommendations on just because I don't think there is a lot of data there. Okay, so it's breakfast tomorrow and I'm I'm thinking about my oats and, and whether I'm going to add, and this is a hypothetical because I know what I would add, but uh, I'm thinking about, I'm tossing up between adding uh, dairy milk and, and soy milk. Do you see a large sort of benefit in, in choosing soy milk over dairy milk? Yeah, for a, a few reasons. I mean, for one, you already mentioned prostate cancer. Dairy may be associated with a higher risk. Um, while soy milk itself in, in this uh, particular meta-analysis wasn't associated with a lower risk, or at least wasn't statistically significantly associated with a lower risk, um, the, the results were at least suggestive of that being the case and, and uh, ultimately wasn't associated with a higher risk. So yeah, substituting out the, the food that might uh, increase risk is definitely a good idea. Um, and then we actually have research on soy milk compared to uh, dairy milk, um, even skim milk, actually, and cardiovascular risk factors. And soy milk might even be more beneficial for things like LDL cholesterol than even skim milk, uh, which is quite impressive because skim milk is usually a better one for cardiovascular disease, too. So I think there are benefits there. Uh, protein content is similar especially if it's fortified calcium content is going to be similar. So it's a, a good source of nutrition too. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll probably no doubt dig into the portfolio diet in part two of this conversation um, and, and and how that's formulated with soy and, and other sort of uh, foods to help improve cholesterol and lower risk of cardiovascular disease. Is there anything else that you want to add here specifically with regards to men and soy before we, we move into discussing women? Um, no, I think that's really a lot of the main issues, uh, especially around, again, going back case studies is where a lot of the concerns come from. Uh, when we look at the actual data, the, the well-designed you know, randomized control trials or meta-analyses of the randomized control trials doesn't seem to be a concern with regard to hormone levels. Okay, so let's slide over to, to women. What data do we have on women, soy or isoflavone consumption and how this affects hormone levels? And I know that the, the data here uh, tends to get broken down to pre and post menopausal women. So perhaps uh, if you feel that that's most appropriate, we uh, tackle it in that order. Sure. So similar to men, we actually have a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials here as well. This was from 2009, and they had 47 trials in there, uh, 11 in premenopausal women, 35 in postmenopausal women, and one in perimenopausal women. Uh, and the doses for the soy intake or the isoflavone intake were actually pretty similar, at least on the higher end, um, to what I spoke about with the, the men's uh, trials. Now, for premenopausal women, starting with that, there were no statistically significant findings for soy consumption and its impact on estrogen or testosterone levels. But there was a statistically significant decrease in both FSH and LH, so follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And there was a one-day increase in menstrual cycle length. So we, we want to break those down a little bit here. 
So the LH hormone, uh, this triggers steroid hormone production in the ovaries, uh, particularly the precursors uh, to estrogen, uh, and is also involved in managing cycle length and releasing the egg from the ovaries and that. Um, Now, follicle-stimulating hormone is uh, what stimulates the enzyme that converts those precursors that I mentioned into estrogen, um, estradiol in particular, and also helps with management of menstrual cycle length and that. So these two hormones kind of work in concert with one another. Now, the authors note that it's very difficult to interpret the findings for FSH and LH because different studies were conducted at different points during the cycle. And the studies were typically moderate to high risk of bias too. And the results ultimately weren't reflected in the estrogen results. So if we were seeing a significant change in FSH and LH values, we might see a change in estrogen values, but we didn't. So you got to take all that with a little bit of a grain of salt. It's not you know, meant to, to freak anyone out too much. But the cycle length finding is interesting because it was only statistically significant for soy protein isolates but was not when looking at soy foods or even total soy or isoflavone intake, particularly after removing the lower quality studies from the analysis. But even then, let's say it did increase length by a day. The authors actually suggest that it would be a good thing because uh, because a a longer cycle is um, associated with a lower risk of breast cancer. So they actually cite that if this were the case, it's probably even a beneficial shift but it doesn't seem to really be the case based on the higher quality data, especially with the actual soy food intake rather than things like supplements. Moving on to, to postmenopausal women, again, there were no statistically significant findings for estrogen or testosterone values. Uh, there was what we call a non-significant increase in estradiol. So there was a, a little bit of a shift that way, which is one of the um, types of estrogen, uh, but it wasn't uh, statistically significant. So certainty around that finding is pretty low. But that finding seems to be driven by isoflavone supplements. So these are higher doses in supplement form, not from protein isolates, not from food, uh, again. And as you already mentioned, that might sound even then a bit concerning to someone hearing that because estradiol concentrations are associated with uh, breast cancer. This shift was very small, non-significant, driven by supplements. And that's why we have to look at health outcomes again. So that, that's why we um, dive into the research on breast cancer risk or soy consumption and actual breast cancer risk. With breast cancer, there is a lot of research on this topic. There are multiple meta-analyses. I'll be talking about a few of them. And you know, the first one I wanted to mention was from 2013. And this one actually shows exactly what I was talking about earlier, where we see a reduction in risk when comparing high consumers to low consumers in Asian populations. But we see a neutral uh, effect on risk in Western populations when comparing high to low consumers. And when you look at the highest levels of consumption in the Western population, it was about one uh, milligram of isoflavones or more. But if you look at the lowest consumption range in the Asian populations, it was five to 15 milligrams. So the highest, the cutoff for the highest consumption in Western populations was a fifth of the lowest consumption in the Asian population. Um, And so that, it totally makes sense why we wouldn't see much of a benefit in the Western populations there, uh, because they're just approaching not even uh, the the sort of range where we see the lowest uh, consumers in Asian populations. Uh, And this is where what's called a dose response really comes in handy. And what that is, it looks at 
how a specific dose can impact your risk or how a certain level of increase in intake can affect your risk. And so a 2019 meta-analysis actually did this. They looked at a dose response of 10 milligrams of isoflavone intake. And so each 10 milligram increase in isoflavone intake was associated with a 3% lower risk of developing breast cancer. And that's for reference. I mean, I gave the numbers earlier, but that could be about half a serving of tofu or so. Or about half a cup of soy milk. Exactly, exactly. And so, so it's, that's a very reasonable amount to be able to consume. Uh, and of course, more may be even better there. Now, if you look at, uh, they did a dose response for tofu specifically, and again, uh, in a, another trial actually, and uh, each 10 grams of tofu was associated with a 10% lower risk. But these were only what we call case control studies. They aren't as high quality as, as prospective cohorts uh, in particular. So uh, again, take it with a bit of a, a grain of salt, but we are seeing lower risk rather than higher risk, which is what people are typically concerned about. Is there any data at all that suggest women with breast cancer should be worried about consuming soy foods? Yeah, we actually have a, a couple meta-analyses on this too. As you can see, lots of lots of research, lots of uh, meta-analyses. So uh, there was one from 2013, uh, and this was on women post-breast cancer diagnosis. And this included five cohorts and over 11,000 participants. And uh, they did find that those consuming uh, more uh, or higher intakes were um, at lower risk of uh, breast cancer and breast cancer recurrence. Um, compared to those consuming low amounts. And they did a subgroup analysis for both mortality, so just total death or recurrence from breast cancer. And this is where things get really, I guess, get a bit more complicated anyway. There are different types or different classifications of breast cancer. So there's estrogen receptor positive, meaning that estrogen can trigger growth. Uh, there's estrogen receptor negative, where estrogen isn't necessary to um, to promote growth of the tissue. Uh, and then they further divided by um, premenopausal and postmenopausal uh, status. Uh, now, for all of those categories I just mentioned, mentioned, there was a lower risk of mortality, so a lower risk of death, which if you are post-breast cancer diagnosis, that sounds like a really good thing, of course. A, a lower risk of mortality with the consumption of soy foods. Exactly, yes. Yeah, with higher intakes of soy. And as far as breast cancer recurrence, so there was a lower risk in the group with uh, estrogen receptor negative uh, cancer or estrogen receptor and progesterone, uh, progesterone receptor positive cancer and in postmenopausal women, but not premenopausal women uh, as far as breast cancer recurrence goes. So that's, I, I'd say we do get some conflicting results amongst different studies for this too. It is, a, as I mentioned, a little more complicated to dive into all the specifics there, but it is suggestive of, again, at best benefit, at worst, a neutral effect. We don't see a higher risk in any of those groups. Do you know in, in that literature, do they speak about the, the kind of typical, what was the exposure for those that did have less risk of recurrence? Were they having a certain number of serves of, of soy a day in order to achieve that benefit? So there wasn't a dose response. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they were comparing high versus low. I know there were um, several Asian cohorts. So we're probably looking in the ballpark of, of even up to a, a couple servings a day or so. But I would have to look back at the specifics of each, uh, each individual study to see what the exposures were. But we also do have another meta that I can quickly um, just go over. There's a, a more recent meta-analysis from 2019 
And this one had 12 cohorts. So um, you're looking at over 37,000 women. And what was interesting is pre-diagnosis intake seemed to reduce uh, or, or sorry, improve overall survival. But the breast cancer survival results were not statistically significant. So if you were consuming more soy prior to your diagnosis of breast cancer, your overall survival rate seemed to be higher, but it wasn't specific to breast cancer mortality. So it wasn't specific to, to are you going to die of breast cancer? It was, it was overall risk of death from, from various causes. So including breast cancer, of course, but it could be cardiovascular and so on. So women who developed breast cancer, those that were consuming more soy beforehand, were less likely to die of anything in the follow-up period. Exactly, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's obviously a, a super important finding. And, and uh, But both pre- and post-diagnosis intake reduced recurrence of breast cancer risk. Uh, so that's also a, another good finding. Again, you, you get these, these little differences, but I think the, the big picture here to take away is that at worst, depending on your situation, there seems to be a neutral impact. At best, there seems to be benefit. Uh, based on the findings that we have. And I think that's the the really important key for people to take away. I think that's comforting. You know, I know people personally that have had breast cancer or have it currently, and it can be very scary. You can read all sorts of things online, particularly about soy. Uh, so thank you for, for clarifying that. A bit of a sidebar here. Uh, I have come across some research suggesting soy formula may affect the reproductive tissue development in female infants. Have you seen that? Yeah, this is, a, this is another, I guess, sort of controversial area because uh, from what I'm aware, different countries, different organizations, they have different recommendations around this. Um, for example, the American Academy of Pediatrics does suggest that soy formula can be a suitable alternative to cow's milk formula, you know, particularly for people with allergies to cow's milk formula or, uh, say, those being raised by you know, vegan parents or maybe for religious reasons. Uh, in Canada, it's pretty similar uh, for the soy formula side. Uh, but then where the differences come in is when it comes to soy milk consumption, the Canadian Pediatric Society suggests not starting on soy milk until age two, whereas in America, they say age one. The reasons aren't super clear to me. I've tried to look into why do they have that two-year cutoff, and I haven't really found much. But as you're saying with the uh, you know, formulas and, and uh, some of those reproductive changes or, or changes in the tissue uh, that might occur, I, I'd say this is something for each parent you know, to potentially speak with their pediatrician about, about what's right for them, because... What we see is that the data we have on soy consumption in youth and even going to, say, soy formula consumption, we don't see it play out in the follow-up data that we have. Now, we don't have super long-term, lifelong follow-ups, but in the research we do have into childhood and, and adolescence, as far as I'm aware, we don't have any actual poor outcomes there. It seems to be a short-term change that we see, um, and it is just these specific you know, markers or, or uh, types of tissues that seem to be affected. So it's a, a tough one to, it's a tough one for me to, to just say like, yes, everyone should be fine with soy formula intake or, or that. I think it's an area where we do still have some gaps in our knowledge and it'd be great to have a little bit more information around that. 
as of now, I think the data we have on, um, on uh, follow-ups of kids-fed formula don't really suggest much in the way of harm. Um, so it would be more of a precautionary step if someone were to want to hold out on that and, and maybe go for other alternatives. What would the major outcomes of interest be? Would it be fertility? Yeah, that would be one of the ones, uh, one of the main ones that I'd be looking at for sure. I think in Australia, and I'm not sure if this is different to other parts of the world, but I, I do think that it's not recommended to have soy formula for preterm infants. Oh, right. Yes, that's a very good point. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's the same in every country around the world. So I think your advice of, of speaking with your physician uh, about your options, they're going to understand your circumstances best and, and then kind of making a plan there is probably uh, a sensible way to go about it. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think there's pretty broad agreement that, you know, breast milk would be ideal. Uh, you know, human breast milk would be ideal for sure. But there are obviously situations where parents can't do that, whether that's a production issue, whether that's uh, work, you know, you can't can't be around the house all the time. But there are all sorts of reasons that one might need to choose a formula. And as you mentioned, yeah, it is. I think it's a pretty standard recommendation uh, against soy, soy formulas for preterm infants. There are special formulas for that. Um, and I don't think we have a soy alternative at this point. What about research looking at soy and other cancers in, in adults? We've spoken about prostate. We spoke about breast cancer. What about ovarian, colorectal, gastric cancers, some of these other common cancers that we see? Yeah, there, there was an umbrella review uh, published. They included 114 meta-analyses and looked at 43 health outcomes. So this was really kind of an aggregate of all of the research up until this point, and that was just from a, a couple of years ago now. And they found that soy or isoflavone intake, depending on how they measured it, was associated with a lower risk of ovarian cancer, colorectal cancer, endometrial cancer, lung cancer, stomach cancer. And that's in addition to um, you know, prostate and breast, as I've already mentioned. And actually, the one negative outcome they found was that miso soup consumption was associated with a higher risk of stomach cancer. And uh, the reason that we see that is likely because of the high sodium content of miso. So, um, yeah, the high sodium intake uh, is pretty well understood. It's associated with a higher risk of stomach cancer. Um, so it's likely due to that, not the fact that it happens to be soy because overall soy consumption is actually associated with a lower risk of stomach cancer. Uh, and the intakes for miso soup there were pretty high, I believe around one to five cups a day or something like that. And was that uh, increased risk of gastric cancer seen mostly in Asian populations, I'm assuming? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there was a recent, uh, another very recent scoping review um, looking at a, a bunch of meta-analyses and health outcomes too. And, and I looked into that one and again, found the exact same thing. And it was uh, also in Asian population. Yeah. I have also read that uh, H. pylori infection, which is more common in, in Asian populations, uh, a type of bacteria that is believed to be a carcinogen is actually made more virulent in a high sodium environment. So it seems like there, there might actually be a kind of interplay between presence of bacteria in this population and then the increased sodium uh, acting as a kind of trigger. Well, yeah, no, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that, but uh, definitely something to look into. Sounds interesting. So where do the cancer guidelines land with all of this? Are they are they sort of echoing, consistent with everything that you're sharing? And and which ones would you 
kind of want to point people to that I can put into the show notes if they'd like to to read more on this? Um, I mean, obviously, I'm Canadian, so I, I usually point to, to Canadian guidelines uh, first and foremost uh, as what I'm most familiar with. But they basically suggest that soy is is you know, possibly beneficial. They, they don't use very strong language here, and you know, I could understand that for sure. But possibly beneficial. Um, they suggest that it's unlikely to be harmful to breast cancer survivors and may actually improve survival, uh, which again, I think is very much in line with what we've uh, discussed here. And then if we hop over to the American Cancer Society guidelines, uh, they actually suggest and they specifically mention meat. They say that soy is a healthier alternative to meat and may reduce risk of certain cancers such as breast and prostate. Um, They do, however, make note of soy supplements, so isoflavone supplements, potentially increasing the risk, uh, risk of estrogen receptor negative breast cancer. Although the same study they based that on found a reduced risk of estrogen receptor positive cancer. The fact that there is any potential for negative leads them to, to suggest stay, steering clear of the supplements and just focusing on food intake instead. I think that's a very, very good, you know, typical uh, recommendation there, a good uh, precautionary measure to play when you can just uh, consume the food instead. Okay, cool. Well, I will put those into the show notes. Slight change of gears here. Before we, we wrap up, part one of this conversation, I'd like to talk to you about a few other aspects of health. What do we know about soy and menopausal symptoms? So this is one actually we do have a lot of research on too, um, mostly in the form of isoflavone supplements. So it's usually not uh, trials on dietary intake, it's on uh, supplements. And there's a 2012 meta-analysis of 17 randomized controlled trials that found that isoflavone uh, consumption was associated with a 20.6% lower hot flash frequency compared to placebo and 26.2% lower hot flash severity compared to placebo. Uh, and the largest effects were seen when uh, genistein intake was over 18.8 milligrams. And sure, that's higher than we might see as far as typical consumption, but it is achievable with a couple servings of tofu a day. Again, I wouldn't extrapolate to tofu necessarily. There are uh, going to be differences there. There are other factors um, when you're consuming uh, tofu versus just the isolated supplement, but that's kind of the best we have for a, a comparison right now. Uh, and there was actually another meta-analysis from 2015 um, that also found a 25% reduction in hot flash frequency compared to placebo with longer-term trials suggesting an even greater effect. Um, and the, the nice thing was there actually wasn't a, an increase or statistically significant increase in adverse events compared to placebo. So that's a, a kind of good point to keep in mind too. And there's a little bit of data around other menopausal symptoms like uh, changes in uh, breast density, endometrial thickness, vaginal dryness, and so on. And these are also outlined by that large umbrella review I mentioned. But we always have to keep in mind that caveat of these are typically isoflavone supplements, not dietary intake. Neil Barnard's group did a, a study on this, right? Yeah, they did. Um, it was the thing is, it wasn't specifically soy, if I recall correctly. It was it was an overall dietary shift with a certain amount of soy, if I recall uh, correctly. There, so again, it, it's harder to draw conclusions regarding soy specifically, given that there are other things going on. Sure, and I think Gem and Newman and I might have, might have spoken about that in our last episode. So, if folks want more uh, information on managing menopause, menopausal symptoms, then I highly recommend going back to to that episode. What about soy and thyroid health? Another claim that comes up 
when soy foods uh, are spoken about is that they're goitrogens and, and that as a result, they can affect thyroid hormone production and negatively affect one's metabolism. Do you have any data that, that speaks to that? I'd love to hear your view. Yeah, and and so in case those are those listening are wondering um, about you know goitrogen, so there are you know cruciferous vegetables, um, soy is included in that group as well that can interfere with iodine uptake by the thyroid and therefore uh, reduce um, thyroid hormone production. That's kind of the very basic gist of, of what we're talking about there. Now there were concerns um, raised, I think it was back in the '60s or maybe even a little earlier '50s, where soy formulas were starting to be used. Again, we we just mentioned formulas a, a few minutes ago, and these infants who were fed soy formulas started developing a goiter. So this is a lump in the throat, which uh, can be a sign of of uh, you know hypothyroidism. And what they found was it was due to the lack of iodine. So when they started adding iodine uh, to the formulas, uh, that didn't really seem to be an issue anymore. And if your iodine intake is sufficient, this shouldn't be a problem. So that just kind of tells us that, uh, that yeah, if you're not getting enough iodine in your diet, which is typically through iodized salt, um, there are iodized salt alternatives. There are, of course, seaweeds, although it's a little less reliable uh, just because of the varying iodine contents. Or, or of course, there are supplements as well. Um, if you're not consuming enough of that, then this could potentially be an issue. Uh, but we do have a 2019 meta-analysis, again, looking at this, uh, looking at trials on soy consumption and thyroid markers. And they found that there was no overall impact on T3 or T4, which are uh, the two thyroid hormones uh, that would uh, probably be of most uh, interest. But there was a small increase in TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. And this is the hormone that's produced that goes to your thyroid and triggers your thyroid to produce thyroid hormone. So if you're hypothyroid, usually your TSH goes up because it's trying to stimulate your thyroid even more, uh, right, to, to produce enough thyroid hormone. However, the small increase was, you know, thought not to be clinically significant. It, it was just such a small increase. And uh, the authors do note, of course, that, uh, I mean, we do need a little more data here, perhaps, but if you're consuming enough iodine, it's probably not a problem. And uh, another thing to note is that if you are hypothyroid, and you're taking a thyroid hormone replacement, so like Synthroid, Levothyroxin uh, being the, the proper term there, you don't want to be having that when you're having soy foods. You want to separate it by about an hour or so. And I, I think it's pretty standard recommendation to consume the, the medication on an empty stomach anyway, you know, separated uh, by about an hour. But that's just something to really keep in mind if you are consuming soy foods and if you are taking this thyroid medication, you don't want to be doing the two at the same time. And that's because the soy foods could affect the absorption of that medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. So you've shared a lot of data here today and generally it's in support of consuming soy. I have a couple of questions for you uh, to kind of close out this conversation. The first one is more to do with the, the practical side of things and thinking about if you're swapping something out, uh, what you would replace it with, or if you're adding something in, what you would be taking out. How much of these benefits, these potential benefits, do you think are due to isoflavones and other nutrients in soy versus what people eating soy are perhaps eating less of? That That's the interesting thing. When we're looking at a lot of the trials, we're trying to isolate 
typically the isoflavones or, or um, you know, we're trying to find comparisons that are very similar. Uh, we have, I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, in part two, but we have some studies on cardiovascular risk factors where you're just supplementing soy protein versus another protein source. I suspect that the overall health benefits would be greater than what we see in a lot of those sorts of trials if we were replacing actual food, if you're replacing meat with tofu, for example. Now, when we're looking at the cohorts um, that we have uh, and look at, say, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and so on, I think absolutely replacement is something that that might be contributing there. It's hard to tease out unless the cohorts are um, you know organized in such a way that they adjust for other dietary factors and often like substitution analyses are great where you look at what happens when you swap one thing for another. We don't have a lot of that for these outcomes that I'm talking about, so it's tough to say, but I do suspect that replacement is definitely playing a role and, and nutrition's always about replacement. That's the thing. Uh, you're you're never going from yeah, I'm not taking exactly my diet today and then adding another serving of tofu on top of it for the next several years and seeing what happens, right? Something has to be coming out of the diet to be replaced with tofu, at least most of the time. So so uh, that's uh, you know, kind of a long-winded way to answer that question. No, I think that's great. Uh, I think people can can make sense of that. The, the net benefit may well be from what what you're removing from your diet and potentially the deleterious effects of that and then also the positive effects of what you add in together adding up to a, having a combined effect on your physiology and and health outcomes if someone said to you look I'm quite interested in in eating a bit more soy and then perhaps they're eating a, a sort of typical uh, western diet what are a couple of the sort of key swaps that you would recommend them to, to focus on that you think would offer the biggest bang for the buck? I think some really simple ones would be swapping out, especially if they eat processed meat, if it is you know, a typical uh, American diet, swapping processed meat for basically anything is good, but swapping it for something like tofu would be fantastic. Even swapping it, if you're just starting to make some of these shifts for you know, a plant-based, soy-based sausage or something would be a net benefit in, in my view. Now, another really easy one, provided that, uh, you know, the taste and all that um, is suitable, replacing dairy, particularly full-fat dairy or full-fat milk with a soy milk could be a good step, at least for cardiovascular risk factors and still provide you with a lot of that calcium and everything too. Um, I think those are a couple of the most easy swaps that someone can make. How do you make tofu tastes good. I know that some sometimes when someone's taking uh, tofu out of the packet for the first time, they're, they're not quite sure what to do with it. Uh, it's a new kind of uh, material to use in their cooking. What would you recommend them explore? Okay. So um, for one, just get smoked tofu and you're all set. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> that's the lazy version. Yeah. Um, but and that's, I'm not saying people are lazy for doing that. I do that. Um, <laughs> But uh, for if you're using plain tofu, something I like to do, and I, I totally got this from my girlfriend, so I can't take credit, but I like to just make slices of the tofu, just pan fry it in a bit of hot sauce, and I throw some like garlic powder, black pepper, paprika on there, you know, flip it, do the other side, uh, and then I throw it in a sandwich, and I love that. It adds a bit of that, you know, spicy kind of hot flavor to it. And then you throw it on, on there with some like avocado, maybe some hummus and, and sprouts and, and that kind of thing, and it's awesome. So I love doing that too. Um, or the other thing too is, is a, a stir fry. So if you're making a, a stir fry, you can just marinate it 
you know, similar to how you might with some other meats, you could always bake it first. I'm um, just, you know, bake it, have it a little crispy or, or a little, uh, yeah, a little, a little crispy on the outside and then mix it in with whatever sauce you're using. And, and that tends to work pretty good too. I'm, I'm not the, the world's best chef or anything. I tend to keep things super, super simple. Uh, but those work for me and I, I find them really tasty. I think that's one of the, the great things about tofu is that it is, it's sort of a blank canvas and it, it acts like a sponge. So you can quickly introduce whatever flavors you enjoy uh, with very little preparation and it's actually quicker to cook than, than most animal products. Uh, lastly, I can't let you come on here without playing devil's advocate, at least a little bit. Uh, all it takes is a, a, a quick Google, and I'm sure you're aware of this, and, and you can quickly find a blog suggesting that soy is poison. And most uh, notably, or most notable, is, is perhaps Western A. Price. And this is an organization, uh, from my understanding, that was established by a Canadian dentist, one of your fellow countrymen, actually, that uh, claims to be a, and I quote, a source for accurate information on nutrition and health. I had a look through their website this morning. It's been sent to me many times, so it, it wasn't the first time that I've scrolled through it. And they have a number of very, very strong claims, such as soy foods cause breast cancer, phytoestrogens cause hypothyroidism, and soy foods contain carcinogens. All of these claims are sort of wrapped up within a, a very expansive blog with wording at the top of the page that says something along the lines of soy alert and 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 is quickly followed by the the kind of oh so common terminology uh, study show and i i'm i'm wondering help me and the listeners reconcile this obviously it's quite concerning for people when they stumble across this or someone sends it to them how can Western A. Price and others be using science but coming to very different conclusions to what you are and what the guidelines say? Yeah. Um, so there's this issue with, I guess, understanding what we call the evidence hierarchy. So yes, you can find evidence for basically any claim. You could, you could find evidence for benefits of smoking if you really wanted to, if you dug deep enough. What we need to look at is the quality of the evidence. And so we have what's called an evidence hierarchy. At the bottom, we have just you know, expert opinion. We have rodent studies or animal studies. We have uh, petri dish studies. Uh, and then as we move up, we have you know, observational research in, in humans, a lot of what I presented. And then we have randomized controlled trials in humans. And then we have meta-analyses. You know? uh, and I mean, there are slightly different iterations and there's more detail to it, but that's kind of the general trend that we see. And there's a reason for that. It's not just made up. The reason being that we actually have very low translation rates of animal-based research to human research. So when we when you have a certain finding in rodents or other animals, we can suspect that, oh, maybe this happens in humans. We should put it to the test. And most of the time, it doesn't happen in humans when we put it to the test. Uh, for, for example, one of the, the recent uh, studies looking at this and cardiovascular outcomes found that 
only about one in five results from the animal studies actually made it through, uh, it was actually supported by human research. Um, we see similar for what we call highly promising, you know, animal studies even. And so we need to be very cautious when looking at them. Now, the reason I mention all that is because I also went through Weston A. Price's website. I clicked on their references link and I saw just one after the other of animal study, animal study, animal study, animal study, feature dish study, and so on. And we just can't have confidence in that given that we have human health outcome data. That's the key. Um, and one of the things that I'll actually just, I'll read off one of the studies that they've listed here because I, I thought it was it's quite shocking the way that the title comes off. But the title of the study is estrogenic compounds are not always cardioprotective and can be lethal in males with genetic heart disease. That sounds terrifying Gosh. if someone were to read that. Right from the study itself, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is more severe in male than female mice eating a soy-based diet, right? So even, even the title of the study alone sounds so scary. And they say males. They don't say male mice. They say males. I mean, that's, that's I'd say, a little irresponsible on the researchers too. That's not even Weston A. Price necessarily. But we have, to be, we have to be very cautious with that. And what's even worse is that it's usually those clinging to these sort of mechanistic studies, the animal studies, the petri dish studies, who also denounce um, epidemiology. So observational research in humans, right? They, they think that this somehow proves the case, but the epidemiology in humans doesn't. I think that's very deceiving though <laughs> yeah. to, to use the word males in your claim. From where I sit, the, the imp you're implying that we're talking about humans here. And, and, and I, I think, and I, um, I, I'm pretty strong in my view on this, I think that anyone who's sharing anything online, writing blogs, giving health advice, I think the onus is on the person sharing that information to state what level of evidence is this. Is this coming from an animal study? Are we talking about humans and making that very, very clear because it is such an important part of considering the weight of that evidence? Yeah, and, and just going back to the epidemiology side, as I mentioned, like this blog, when they were talking about soy and thyroid health was one of the topics that they mentioned, they listed all of these concerns, again, pretty much all based on this sort of speculative evidence that I just mentioned. And then there's one cohort they have. There's actually another one now too, but there was one cohort at the time um, that suggested a lower risk of thyroid cancer in those who consume more soy. They dove so deep. They spent half, at least half of the whole article trying to break apart this study, which is of a higher relevance than anything they cited um, to suggest that, oh, you know, we can't use this to make any claims while they're making claims based off this sort of speculative evidence. Um, and the funny thing is, we actually have studies looking at the concordance between um, observational research and randomized controlled trials in humans. And especially in nutrition, we find that about two thirds, even over two thirds of the time, they're concordant. They agree with each other. And we have multiple, and it's not just one analysis either. We have three um, analyses that separately have found this sort of result. And sure, it's not perfect. It's not 100% concordance, but it's better than 20% or, or whatever it is, or even lower, depending on the outcome with rodent studies. So we shouldn't be giving more weight to this 
um, the, you know, the animal research, the petri dish research and, and all of that. So it is, I mean, at a point, I think it becomes just dishonest. I think at a point, it's not just a misunderstanding anymore, especially with the type of language being used. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being uh, cynical, but uh, that's just how it comes off to me. No, I, I tend to agree with you there. Well, thank you, my friend. I uh, appreciate you taking the time to walk us through what is a very confusing uh, and often triggering topic. I think this will be a very handy, helpful episode for, for many. And I look forward to continuing this conversation in part two, where we focus on how soy affects other aspects of human health, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, the development of muscle and strength, bone density, uh, risk of fracture, etc. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. There we go, my friends. I hope you found that one interesting. I know I certainly did. Before I let you go, quick teaser on something new that's coming. This show is evolving as we all are. Head to theproof.com for a few details and register your email to join the priority list. That's theproof.com. And with that, I think we can land this airplane. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I love you guys. And as always, I'm looking forward to repeating things in just a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.